welcome to Compassionate Las Vegas, the podcast. We are here to host and inspire a network of compassion. I believe the need for more compassion is the most pressing issue of our time. Love and compassion are not luxuries, but are necessities for human survival. This is Compassionate Las Vegas, the podcast where we share your stories of compassion. I want to welcome you to Compassionate Las Vegas, the podcast, and I want to welcome you to my dear brother and soul friend, Will Rucker, who has taken this hat on and he's wearing the hat, Be the Change, and who is really engaging our community with the intention of transforming our community into a more compassionate home and workplace and playground for all of us. So. Tip of the hat, Will Rucker. Uh, thank you so much for what you do. Wow. I, I thank you for that guard. That was totally a guard, Jameson, thing to do. And I don't expect anything different from you, but wow. We'll have to talk about that later. So thank you. Welcome to the audience. I am so glad that you've tuned in today for the very first episode of Compassionate Las Vegas, the podcast. I could think of no better guest to have on than Dr. Guard Jameson. He exudes compassion. He is compassion embodied, and you are going to get so much value from what he shares today. I have to tell you a quick story, then I'll get to his bio. But a few years back, when I first became acquainted with him, I actually showed up at his house unannounced. Well, it wasn't completely unannounced. We had a board meeting plan that had been moved, and I didn't update my calendar or something happened. Nonetheless, I showed up. I was the only one there. I was early in the morning, and guard was just as friendly and welcoming as can be. Instead of telling me, okay, well, sorry you're here the wrong day. I'll see you next time. He invited me in, we shared tea and conversation, and really began a very meaningful friendship, I would say. And that's just who he is. He makes everyone around him feel comfortable. He's always lending a helping hand. He never takes credit for what he does, but I'm gonna brag on him for just a minute. So Dr. Gard Jamison received his PhD in 2005 from Pacifica Graduate Institute. He spent 25 years as a CPA, and now he teaches philosophy. Perfect subject for him. But he teaches philosophy at UNLV right here in Las Vegas. He is the author of several books, including the most recent one, The Peace Pilgrim Pictures, which we're going to talk about today on the show. Gard helped to found, and he currently chairs the boards for the Children's Advocacy Alliance, the Interfaith Council of Southern Nevada. He's the founder and inspiration behind the Jameson Fellows. He's the founder with his wife of Volunteers in Medicine, which he's going to tell us all about in a bit. He also helped found the Nevada Community Foundation and many, many other accolades. I could go on for ages. But what I know he's most proud of is his wife and his children. So with that, I want to ask this very important hardball question to get us started. So Guard, who are you? And I want to add a part B before we get into it. Who are you and how do you define compassion? Who is Guard? That's a great question. Um, Guard is not what Guard does. Guard is a part and part parcel of something greater and has the privilege to be on this planet at this time 
and to be of service and to be in connection with that greater power. So that that is kind of how I would self-identify. And for me, Will, uh, compassion is such uh, an encompassing value. Uh, you have behind you a statue of the Buddha, and Buddha had two premier values. He, he had wisdom and compassion. Prajna, which is wisdom, suggests that there's a quality of emptiness to our lives, which suggests a quality of humility in our attitude. And compassion uh, gives us a sense that we're on a planet, we're in an existence where things are not quite right. And so how can we each as individuals begin to open our hearts to that quality of dis-ease, of difficulty, of restlessness that is happening around us? And this, as you know, is exacerbated right now by the COVID-19 virus. And so... It is in a moment of extreme um, difficulty, but it's also a moment of extreme opportunity. Yeah, definitely. I love that. And for you in this moment of opportunity, what would you say are the most important self-care practices or, or self-compassion practices we can use? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, so, you know, in Buddhism, I teach Indian philosophy and in Buddhism, the seventh and eighth step in the Eightfold Path are very profound. One is that when our eyes are open, we should be mindful to our own emotional reactions um, in the moment. So when we go into a grocery store, when we're driving, when we're talking to somebody, when we're interacting, what are we noticing? Are we noticing a quality of fear, anxiety? Are we noticing any anger? And if we are, uh, we have an opportunity. This is the opportunity, and it's huge, to take responsibility for those emotions and to recognize it's really about those emotions and about our response to the world around us. That's where compassion begins. And so we are, are given that as a practice, mindfulness, we call it, to be mindful of our emotional state right now. And when we notice that anxiety or that anger or that fear, we recognize that's not who we are. That's not our fundamental self. That's not our true self. Those are just evolutionary responses, biological responses to difficulty in the present moment. So can we learn to unattach ourselves from those emotional responses? That's a big practice, and that's what mindfulness is about. The second practice Buddha recommended was to uh, periodically, and I recommend my teacher, Thomas Keating, said, once a day for maintenance, twice a day for improvement. And I say in this current moment, uh, maybe three or four times a day, because we have a little extra time, is to uh, close our eyes and really allow ourselves to enter into the space of soul through whatever practice uh, really resonates with us. Uh, for myself, it's centering prayer where I use a sacred word to sort of bring myself into a quality of presence with the divine within. And what I recognize is that quality of divinity within me is doing two things. One, it's healing. It's healing those negative emotional responses. And two, it's beginning to transform me so that I can be even more compassionate um, and maybe bring even a little more wisdom to what I'm doing. With those two practices, 
obviously the life that you lived has been a journey for sure. Yeah. And so have those practices always been with you or when did you first begin to use them? Well, I was a freshman in college uh, up in Palo Alto and a friend of mine told me that a guy named Maharishi Mahesh Yogi was coming through and teaching transcendental meditation. So I said, well, that sounds more interesting than frat, a frat party. So <laughs> <laughs> I, I went and I learned to meditate and I would often spend my weekends in meditation retreats out of Mount Cobb. And what I experienced was profound will. It was uh, that quality of healing. I grew up in an environment where there was a little bit of alienation and separation from my parents and um, some difficulty. And uh, what I observed is that I experienced a lot of tears, a lot of healing, a lot of emotional awareness, and sort of grew through those experiences, through those retreats, and through the meditation and mindfulness to a place where I was no longer attached to those negative emotions associated with my early childhood. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, so you mentioned negative emotions, and that's a perfect kind of segue into your book, uh, The Peace Pilgrim Pictures, which oh. is phenomenal. Uh, but one thing that you mentioned in the book is that anxiety, anger, and fear are actually messengers. Yeah. Can you talk a little bit more about that? Yeah, well, Rumi has a great uh, poem called The Guest House, and he basically says, you know, all of these emotions are messengers. They're here to um, signal perhaps a new way of being in the world. And when we see that anger, and now the neuroscience has been backing it up, when we see that anger, we actually realize we are um, doing a very destructive thing to our own physiological state, our, our, our brains, our hearts, and our gastrointestinal system. So all of the major chronic diseases are related to these negative but I also say in the book that these emotions are absolutely essential because you, Will, are a winner. Um, and oftentimes my students look at me as if I'm a little eccentric when I say that. But I tell them you're a winner because uh, uh, 3.8 billion years of evolutionary history and you're sitting here. And those emotions actually help propel your lineage so that you could be sitting here. So in the West, we sometimes look at those emotions as sins or as uh, something to be avoided or repressed or suppressed. And actually, that's what mindfulness says you shouldn't do. You should become aware of them, find out where they are in the body, and recognize that they are not who you are. So we have an opportunity through the recognition of those emotions to sort of claim our birthright. And our birthright is that we are beings of joy. And joy is the infallible sign of the divine presence within. Joy is also the indicator of compassion and wisdom. And so what I always tell my students, tell me who uh, would take that invitation. Who wants to stay in that door of anxiety, fear, and anger? Don't raise your hand. See me after class. <laughs> we need to talk. Yes, for sure. But again, honoring those emotions because evolutionarily, uh, biologically, they were absolutely essential to you and me having this conversation. And you also mentioned that the paradox of life is that we need to provide for immediate safety and security, yeah. but we also need to attend to our spiritual selves. And I thought it was really profound because you said that our authentic nature is truly unselfish, 
And then you linked being unselfish with compassion. So how does that work? Well, you know, just like uh, Sir Isaac Newton said, there are laws that govern the universe physically. There are laws that govern the universe spiritually. And we have had those laws on the books. We've had an awareness of those laws. And, And the primary law is the law of reciprocity, as Confucius speaks of it, or the golden rule or the rule of compassion. And what I want to say is that that rule is a declaration of independence. It's the true declaration of independence. It's the recognition that all life is sacred, not just humans, but all life is sacred, and that we should be grateful every moment for all life. And we should, in our own way, respect all life. And we should create what in game theory is called the formula of win-win which is if Will's not winning, then I'm not winning. Mm. If my transgender daughter is not winning, then I'm not winning. If the teenage, teenager who's contemplating suicide is not winning, then I'm not winning. And when we open ourselves up to that, we create a quality of mourning, of awareness, which leads to the value of compassion. And compassion, I'd sort of define as that attitude which empathizes with the suffering of others while at the same time creating an intention to do something about that suffering in the other as well as in ourselves. That's beautiful. With that winning piece, can you just talk a little bit more about that? Because, of course, winning is a huge American ideal. Everyone wants to be the winner. But I love how you position it with, if everyone's not winning, really no one is. So how can we take that that idea of being victorious and extend it to all, make it a universal idea? Well, as you know, I'm, I'm, I'm interfaith and I draw from lots of traditions, but Paul said something very interesting about the body um, and that the body is this sort of organism that is constructed where everything is supporting everything else and that the body only works when all of these organs and systems are working together in harmony and one of my teachers thomas berry who is a great uh, a great we call him a geologian but he said there are really only three principles that govern the entire universe a quality of unity that we're all connected interdependent a quality of diversity that God made more than roses. He made daisies and daffodils and vincas and all kinds of wonderful displays of beauty all around us, diversity. So that's the second principle, diversity. And the third principle is that each of us has a gift that only each of us can discover. So when we tie those three principles together, we get a win-win formula. We get the opportunity to recognize that Um, If I'm not doing everything within my power to support marginalized communities, African-Americans, Hispanics, gays and lesbians, transgenders, all of those people that have been marginalized over the years and decades, then I am not supporting, I'm not going to be supported by the universe, and I am not supporting the universe, which is basically, as Amy Gross said about hate, it's, she said, it's like, drinking poison and thinking that you're killing the other person, (laughs) (laughs) which is really stupid. (laughs) And we as a species have been 
quite stupid. And <laughs> there's a picture of Shiva who is dancing and she is joyous, but she's dancing on a little creature. And oftentimes as a child advocate, people say, I thought you were a child advocate. And I said, well, actually that little creature is a metaphor for ignorance mm. of our own true self, ignorance of the invitation, the divine invitation we've been given to be healed and to be transformed. Wow. This stuff just oozes out of you. It, it's amazing. And you just draw from so many different wells. So I'm going to take us down another road for just a moment. Yeah. Then I want to get to the Charter for Compassion, which of course is our main topic for today. Yeah. But as really a pillar in the Las Vegas community, it can seem as though no matter what you do, it's never enough. How do you manage to continue doing good when it's never satisfying the masses, we'll say? Well, yeah, Lao Tzu, the Taoist sage, said, Wei Wu Wei, which is the path of least resistance. So for me, what I've discovered, Will, is the path of least resistance is to maximize mindfulness and meditation every day. And that gives me um, a kind of a, a map of what I should be giving my attention to. So every day I wake up and I say, okay, I'm ready. Uh, give me the roadmap and here we go. But I take that time, 20 or 30 minutes, to sort of listen, deeply listen. And that's what Centering Prayer is all about, to deeply listen into that divine presence, which speaks in silence. And it's always a question, why silence? Why doesn't God just open up in English or Spanish or French? <laughs> And the bottom line is because God is no respecter of person, and that in silence, we find the music of our own existence. Wow. That's been my experience. And so out of that comes sort of the roadmap for what it is that we should be doing. And as a child advocate, one of my greatest concerns, I used to tell people, do you know that one out of 10 of our teenagers attempt suicide? And what ordinarily I'd get is sort of a glazed look with a sort of a stunned rabbit in the in the in the in the in the in the, in the light of the car. And I, I've just been struggling with this. But I will say, right now during this virus, people are now opening their eyes. And even though there's great tragedy, there are great things happening. Compassionate action is happening, and the great souls are stepping up not stepping back mm. on what is happening. Yeah. So in spite of the resistance, you find that mindfulness and meditation and really listening to that great divine presence is what allows you to move forward. I don't know how people survive without it. I, uh, you know, I, again, for me, it's been the door number two experience. And I just say to myself, why would I want to live with a quality of deep fear and panic and, and anger when this other is my birthright? This is who I truly am. Um, again, your statue of the Buddha behind. Buddha says, guess what, guys and gals? You're already Buddhas. You just don't know it. And so Buddha means awaken, the awakened one. So it's an issue of wake up. Yeah. <laughs> right? We've been asleep for so long. Why don't we wake up? <laughs> and you are definitely helping people to wake up, yeah. which I think is really what the Charter for Compassion seeks to do. Mm. As I mentioned earlier with your book, meaning the 
or I should say, you said the anxiety and fear being messengers in this time of really panic for a lot of people. A lot of people are experiencing these emotions in a way they've never had to deal with before. They're having to sit with them because they don't have anywhere else to go. They don't have another outlet. So with that, I think this is the perfect time for people to become acquainted with compassion. And so the Charter for Compassion has been around for quite some time now, but it's relatively new to Las Vegas. Is that right? Relatively new. Uh, It's been developing um, like a wave. I used to surf. So it's been developing like a swell and uh, it's sort of crested in the last few years. Um, And so now we're able to ride that wave. And um, the Charter was started by Karen Armstrong who has written, uh, for anybody that doesn't know the name, go to Amazon and look her books up. She has written on every major world religion. She has written on compassion. Uh, She's written on both the the light side and the dark side of religion and trying to shine a light on what are the fundamental values which tie us together as human beings, as part of a larger speciation of all life. and. She identified, and I think correctly so, because the sages from every tradition, not just some, but every tradition, have said compassion is at the heart of it all. And they've said that through the Golden Rule. So in, in late, uh, the late latter part of the first decade of this uh, century, I think it was 2008, she won the TED Prize. And she was given a certain amount of money to start the Charter for Compassion. And as I say, compassion is really the true declaration of independence for our planet right now, both ecologically and um, from the standpoint of us as humans. And out of that emerged a network of cities. So there are over 450 cities that have declared themselves as compassionate cities, Las Vegas being one of them. Thank you, Carolyn Goodman and City Council. Don't go past that. So Las yeah. Vegas has been declared a compassionate city. Just, just expound on that part, because that's really exciting. It's really exciting. When I presented it to Carolyn, who I, I used to be her CPA, uh, hers and Oscars, and so I had a fond relationship with both of them for many years, and I asked if I might just ask a question. So when I stepped into her office, it took her about three nanoseconds to say, of course, we're going to do this. And the city council, of course, it was unanimous. And uh, tip of the hat, wag of the tail, as Stephen Colbert would say to Ivana Consella, who has made Nevada the second compassionate state in the nation. She has made a declaration giving us that designation as Nevada, the compassionate state. So compassion really, and we have a new brand now, uh, Will, it's hope means Nevada. Compassion really is the gateway to hope. Mm-hmm. And that's what, that's our food and drink. Without hope, life is not really worth living. And so we, we need to turn that spark of compassion into a bonfire of compassion. And it's happening. It's happening all around me. I can see it in every direction I turn. It's really exciting to observe. So we are part of that network. And what we're trying to do is amplify that value, not just as a concept, but as a heartfelt value. So again, wisdom, we, we might say, is more about IQ and compassion more about the heart, EQ, and what we've learned about the heart is that it's not just a blood pumping mechanism, but it's also a brain. It has neurons, it uh, delivers endocrines uh, to the system, it has five times the magnetic resonance of the brain, 
and it has memory and it has memory. Um, I recommend a book called The Heart's Code if you're interested in exploring that. It's about heart transplant patients. So compassion is real. It's rooted in our physiological system. It's rooted in our spiritual system. And what we need to do is wake up and be part of the movement, part of the real revolution. Yeah. And what brought you to the movement? How did you hear about it? What, what sparked it for you? Well, there's a long story and a short story on that one. So a little longer, I'll just give you a little taste. When I was uh, in college, again, after learning to meditate, I called my dad one time and I said, Dad, there's this great program where I can help a kid in Africa for 10 bucks a month. And he said, no. And I thought, oh, Scrooge. He said, no, I want you to join Big Brothers Big Sisters. Mm. So I joined Big Brothers Big Sisters. I had a young brother named Kurt who had cerebral palsy, couldn't move uh, hands or legs. And I introduced him to the sports teams at Stanford, and he quickly became a kind of, uh, I don't know, um, really a popular figure within Stanford life. And so, darn it, he he got 50-yard line tickets at the uh, stadium for the football games. I had to sit in the stands, but it was all good. But... um, but that really opened my heart to the, to the realization it's not just about writing a check. It's about doing something for another human being. And the apex of that experience was when we were called, I was a senior at, uh, in college, and we were called by the Burlingame police because there was a rowdy band coming down Burlingame Avenue, and they were playing this song, Happy Birthday, Kurt. And what I observed I, was a young man who, before I met him, was, had attempted suicide with a telephone wire and now was fully engaged and had found meaning and purpose in his life through the value of compassion. And so that really started my trek, and it's been unfolding ever since. And then I was lucky enough to marry my wife, who is an extraordinary human being who helped to start Volunteers in Medicine of Southern Nevada which we say uh, is a culture of compassionate caring. And we say we reach out and touch the underserved with love. And in the process, we heal ourselves. And the healthcare professionals who have come as volunteers have said, I've rediscovered why I went into healthcare. This is, this is it, compassion. That's amazing. And the volunteers in medicine, we, weren't, we didn't get to that yet, but that's one of the, the I think most important places in our community. And I know that you've expanded and, and now offer multiple services, but the, the experience, not just for the patients, but for the healthcare providers is absolutely, I think, vital. My uncle is a ER doc. And so of course, right now with everything going on, just it, it's amazing. But one of his biggest complaints when he first entered the profession was he didn't get to care for the people. Right. So I do notice with uh, your staff there, everyone really takes the time to care. And mm-hmm. the facility is immaculate. It doesn't feel like they're getting, you know, free services or anything. It feels very professional and inviting. So I, I think that just exudes compassion in a very real and tangible way. Yeah. If anybody's interested, bmsn.org, bmsn.org, take a look. We have patient stories there. And Again, uh, we want to model compassion as an organization. People often tell me, no, compassion is a personal thing. Well, yes, but it also can be an organizational culture. 
And Voltaire, who was a great philosopher, once said, I'm not interested in history. I'm interested in, in culture. And what we're experiencing right now, Will, is something quite phenomenal. We're living through a shift in planetary culture. We are at the seed point. We're at the beginning of the gate where we're stepping through from what we would call the mammalian period or the Cenozoic period into what my teacher Thomas Berry would call the Echozoic, where we are becoming mindful and compassionate about each other and about the environment around us. Um, doesn't look so good right now. There are a lot of bad statistics, but something marvelous is happening. And so I encourage people to, I, I tell my students, all oars in, all hands on deck, to step it up, right, in this current moment. You could step back, but you could also step up. And Zoom has helped us to do a lot of that. It has. And I, I, I love that sentiment. One thing that I've been sharing with people lately is this pandemic has really proven to us we're not neighbors on this planet, but we are all are actually roommates sharing the same home. Yes. And so when we take that perspective, I think it makes this value that much more important because that empathy piece is huge for compassion. And a lot of people will say, well, I'm not naturally that way, and they don't feel as though it's something they can truly develop. Are there any tips that you have to help people be able to embrace this? Because I, I agree that we're absolutely moving toward this as a, a species. Yeah, yeah. So there's something called loving kindness practice, which I encourage people who don't feel that that's a natural instinct, which, by the way, is not true. Uh, old Chinese philosopher said, if you saw a baby crawling toward a well and you knew that the consequence would be death, you know, what would you do? And I, I, as I tell my students, if you wouldn't run to the aid of that baby, see me after class, let's talk. But I think universally, most of us have that sentiment of compassion. And even the people you're talking to, I would use that example and say, what would you do in that situation? And I think you'll find most people would run in. And so I often say, well, then you really are a compassionate being. You just need to cultivate it. Huh? Oftentimes, the, the language about God, too, I say, you know, tell me you don't believe in God, but tell me about the God you don't believe in, because I probably don't believe in that one either. Um, I, I believe in a God of compassion and absolute wisdom. And that God is engaged right now. His angels are engaged. And again, what he respects above all else is our free will and our capacity to make choices. Choices for wisdom, choices for compassion, you know, doing the kind of work you're doing, um, doing the compassionate Las Vegas work. This is what grows souls. And so this is an extreme opportunity to develop our souls personally and collectively. Yeah. Wow. Well, I want to say thank you so much for joining the podcast today. This is something we have to do again because there's just so much that we could talk about and yeah. we just scratched the surface here. But to kind of wrap us up in a few sentences, a few words, what would you say you are doing personally to embody compassion in Las Vegas? And also, how does that impact the world as a whole? Mm -hmm. That's a that's a good question. Um, Dalai Lama once said, I'm just a bug. And uh, that's, I kind of agree with that sentiment, but I'm doing everything I can. Um, so we have Compassionate Las Vegas, compassionatelv.org. Uh, we have the Jameson Fellowship, which is extending a quality of relational uh, connectivity 
and beneficial influence amongst the nonprofit leaders here in our community in all of our sectors. Uh, we are doing things with United Way and we're doing things through our individual organizations. So, you know, I'm really engaged with this issue around uh, teen, teenage suicide. And I'm really interested in seeing our culture change. So I'm hoping that you, my friend, with this podcast and with our other friends, Polly Weinstein and Nikki Tadlevich and Julie Murray and so many people, Kyle Ron at United Way, that we will expand the ripple effect of this pebble in the lake and that we will see compassion at the back end of all of this truly be embedded as part of our community's culture and that that will be something that people globally will look to going look at that las vegas imagine right the strip it's a compassionate city and indeed that is happening right now people are looking globally at las vegas they have been here they have met our our folks who are doing on the ground work and they're truly turning their heads and saying Las Vegas is, in some sense, kind of leading the way in compassion work. And so tip of the hat, wag of the tail to all of you out in the listening audience that are in this boat uh, or roommates, right, who are doing this work. And thank you, Will, for, for what you're doing. God bless you. Thank you for listening to Compassionate Las Vegas, the podcast. This episode is made possible by the Jameson Foundation in partnership with the Moonrich Group. There are so many amazing things happening and so many people have inspirational stories to share. So if you are one of those people, this is your platform. Email me at will at winningwithwill.com. Use the subject line, Compassionate LV or Compassionate Las Vegas and let me know your story. I'd love to have you on the show or to feature your story in a future episode. Be sure to subscribe, and if you haven't already, leave a five-star review. Your review and rating helps others to find this podcast and helps to further the mission to make the world a more compassionate place. I also want you to share your practices for compassion. Today, Gard shared how meditation and mindfulness changed his life. What practices have you found to change yours? We want to tell our audience all about it in a future episode, so be sure to include your compassionate practice with your five-star review. Love and compassion aren't luxuries, they are necessities. Live the golden rule and treat others the way you would want to be treated. Together, we can make a difference. Together, we will make the world a more compassionate place. Know that you are not just a drop in the ocean. You are the entire ocean in a drop. Be well, my friends, and we will meet again on the next episode of Compassionate Las Vegas, the podcast.